Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording February 28th, 2023, we're talking to our fellow, Dr. Timothy Choi, about a report he recently co-authored titled Canadian Submarine Recapitalization Within the Context of Climate Change, which discusses uh, future submarine requirements, uh, the Arctic ice considerations uh, that would lead into a future Canadian submarine project. Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the Government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Tim, welcome back to Defense Deconstructed. Thanks, David. So we're talking uh, about Canadian submarines in the context of a report that you co-authored titled Canadian Submarine Recapitalization Within the Context of Climate Change, uh, which is published uh, through BASIC. Um, before we get into the substantive discussion, just, just take a minute to talk about that publication. Yeah, sure. Uh, so BASIC is the British American uh, Security Information Council. They're a think tank based out of London and the UK. Uh, they usually work with um, nuclear non-proliferation and things like that, but they're starting to branch out more into the maritime and uh, new technology space. So uh, I was working with them as a consultant for the last uh, two years or so, and it was one of the reports we published uh, courtesy of a grant from D&D uh, under the Mines program. And of course, you know, we're talking about here um, Canada's need to replace our submarines and what does the, uh, you know, expect the state of technology uh, grant us in that, in that particular context. And of course, as well, you know, the changing uh, degree of ice that's in the Arctic. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's basically the uh, summation of it. And so the full report, which is around 36 pages, um, it's, will be, if it is available on the basic website. So, and that'll be linked at the uh, podcast. So, uh, Timely uh, topic, given uh, several things. One, the defense policy update uh, underway at the moment with the national defense, and um, we'll see where that goes. The other would be lots of discussion about the need to enhance continental defense. Um, and we saw an announcement about NORAD modernization, um, which I think is you know part of that, not anything to do with the, the maritime component that we saw last June. And then uh, a couple of years ago, we saw an announcement that um, the Canadian Navy had initiated formally a project to replace the Victoria-class submarines with new submarines at some point in the future. Although from reading through the, the details on that, it's not actually a project that a government has approved, but, but uh, pres presumably there's an, an interest in, in getting to that point with the defense policy update. So a timely discussion. Um, just take a minute to talk a little bit about why you thought um, the climate change angle was an important piece of context uh, for this report and a discussion about future Canadian submarines. Sure. Um, so the climate change angle really comes from the whole uh, Arctic sea ice issue. And the importance of the Arctic sea ice comes from the recognition on the part of the Canadian Navy, at least in the submarine project office, uh, based on what their, um, some of their leadership has talked about in interviews and in sort of uh, closed Chatham House discussions um, that 
in any future um, replacement for the Victory class, they are looking to have an Arctic capability of some sort. Now, what that particular option might be, they're obviously um, putting into consideration and is in the process of exploring options. Um, but you know, we thought that with this report that we could take the opportunity to at least lay out some of the main overarching uh, concerns regarding the issue of operating in sea ice, under sea ice, and from at least the Canadian side of the Arctic and for Canadian purposes. And in terms of time frame, of course, we have to look sort of really far into the future because you know I don't think anybody expects us to get a Victoria class replacement until the mid thirties or late thirties. And of course they'll be running for 40 to 50 years uh, after that. So uh, we really had to look a long time frame way to see what sort of the uh, sea ice situation might be in that future time frame, what the Arctic might look like by that point. And we uh, decided to sort of take the trying to go where no one has really dared to try to tread um, in case in this in the discussion of Canadian submarine replacements. And specifically, you know, you'll see a lot of discussion and literature on, you know, projected expectations of what Canadian submarines might do in the Arctic or might do elsewhere, well, elsewhere um, in the world. Um, a lot of them, though, you know, try to shy away from the notion of we need to have submarines under the ice, under the, you know, central Arctic sea ice, and they try to keep away from the notion that, well, maybe we shouldn't use them, or we don't have a need to use them um, against uh, Russian submarines underneath that ice pack. And so in this particular report, we try to take that high and um, really sort of, um, you know, dangerous ground, as it were, and try to see just how far we can stretch a prospective Canadian submarine capability um, to counter that sort of Russian under ice uh, submarine threat. And, you know, just based on what sort of a reasonable expectation in terms of, um, you know, a future submarine option might be for us within that um, space. So start out like you do in the report with a little bit more of a discussion about how uh, ice actually matters to how the Russians have used their submarines. And I, and I know, I, I think you basically have focused on that um, discussion, which I don't think precludes, and I don't uh, think I read it into the, the report itself, the idea that we would be looking to use these submarines in other, other theaters, the Pacific, Mediterranean, et cetera. But you spend particular time, I think, uh, with lots of good reason talking about Arctic operations in particular. Uh, so walk us through a little bit about how ice matters for how Russia has historically and may be today and into the future using their submarine fleet. Yeah, sure. So the core of the uh, Russian submarine nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine, their SSBN strategy, is what's called a bastion. And so really, they try to keep their submarines relatively close to home, uh, where they can be protected by surface vessels, aircraft, and land-based assets to really try to deter NATO um, anti-submarine assets from going after those SSBNs. And of course, the safest way to protect a submarine from aerial assets and surface assets is to hide them under the ice. And so, you know, operating out Murmansk, the Arctic sea ice has traditionally, um, at least uh, back when this whole bastion strategy in the, started in the 70s, um, you know, they weren't too far away from that sea ice that protected them um, from aerial units and surface ships. And so all they had to do really worry about was uh, other countries' nuclear submarines. And in that context, even under ice, um, warfare is quite difficult just because of how the ice uh, interacts with the water and so the sonar um, sensors. And so, you know, that sort of, um, you know, the bastion strategy has more or less continued uh, unabated since the 1970s. And there was a brief pause sort of during at, at the end of the Cold War 
um, and going towards the trend the 2000s but you know in the uh, in recent years they've definitely uh, resumed such operations and in very recently in 2020 2021 even 2022 uh, they publicly advertised the servicing of their nuclear powered or their SSBNs in the Arctic sea ice and um to really demonstrate and convey to us that yeah they still definitely do this and that if you if for some reason the west wants to come after the ssbns they're gonna have to go under the ice to go after them um and you know in one particularly um poignant exercise umca 21 they had three ssbns servicing together through the ice um right next to each other and so that really demonstrates to us their competency in undersea navigation uh, and the professionalism apparently of the um, their build of the crews and be able to do this, and you know in the context of the uh, the land and air forces rather dismal um, and actually their navy too um, performance in Ukraine. Um, I think this is the one highlight of their uh, the Russian armed forces is that they do keep their nuclear forces um, relatively competent. It would seem, and it's uh, something that we shouldn't just um, you know hand wave away as though they're uh, just as bad as all the uh, other <laughs> performers in uh, Ukraine. So really, then. Um, we, you know, in the past and present and for the foreseeable future, we really do see the Russians continuing um, the whole under ice bastion strategy. And we sort of see this in their new um, submarines as well. Um, for a brief time, they built two of the new Bore class SSBNs with a particular sail design that would not have been very conducive to operating and diving through the ice. Um, and, you know, the more recent versions of that submarine has uh, certain design features in sail that makes it more, uh, more easy to, um, you know, operate up and through the ice. So uh, we definitely see some sort of uh, implication that they do um, expect to continue to operate through uh, the Arctic sea ice um, in the coming decades. So that's definitely uh, the area, main area of operations that the West um, should be concerned with for both their SSBNs and one would think their um, guided missile uh, submarines as well, the Yasin class. So if that's um, some of the employment model for what um, the Russians uh, would use their submarines for, and then that would drive one set of uh, activity from um, the Canadian forces and a Canadian uh, future Canadian submarine. Um, talk a little bit about what you would identify as some of the other uh, prospective roles going into the future for a future submarine uh, capability, and then we'll come back to the, uh, the Canadian ice and the Canadian Arctic uh, discussion. Sure. Um, so a lot of what the, uh, you know, past and present sort of um, tasks for Canadian submarines have been really, really the uh, wide ranging sort of um, activities. They include a bunch of intelligence gathering, um, sort of a long range tracking of um, Russian submarines. Um, we've seen that both during the Cold War um, with the old Oberon class um, as they're tracking the old Yankee SSBNs off the eastern seaboard, um, but also um, more recently with the Victoria class when they're deployed to Europe, um, checking that breakout back in 2015 of four Russian subs um, into the North Atlantic. Um, so we see them doing a lot of that sort of traditional work. A little bit less traditional work would be um, them operating under, occasionally under Obnanuk up in our Arctic um, to practice uh, delivering and retrieving special operations forces on land um, and generally just part participating in sort of a, um, you know, maritime domain awareness, um, either generally in terms of uh, different anti-terrorist missions in uh, the Mediterranean in Europe and, of course, more uh, pointedly uh, under uh, Op Neon over in Japan um, in a for brief moment in the 2017-2018 sort of period. Um, and so, you know, our, we're 
despite the very limited number of hours um, that our submarines have been able to put out to sea, uh, it's clear that we see a very broad spectrum of um, tasks and roles that they're um, being asked to do. And whether this means that those are the sort of roles that we see are as priorities to maximize um, during that those very limited sailing hours, or whether the Navy wants to try to see how far we can stretch and explore and uh, practice and uh, learn from operating all these different modes and operations. Um, you know, either case, uh, we see, you know, the Navy has a desire to continue these sorts of things into the future. So, yeah, I was, was going to ask, how would you assess I me mean, given I, I think there's probably uh, roughly no one that would um, express a high degree of satisf satisfaction with the amount of actual operational time that the existing Victoria class um, submarine uh, fleet has been able to be at sea. Uh, so given that, I mean, I guess as you're assessing the sort of the experience over the last couple of decades and looking ahead, how do you go about kind of drawing what you can from the actual operational record of the last couple of decades with that fleet and extrapolating forward, recognizing that I think there's, you know, I'm presumably there's a whole host of other things that folks uh, would have been interested in doing if you'd had uh, more than um, the actual amount of sea days that have been available to the fleet, uh, which in some cases have been zero. Yeah. So one of the ironies of the Canadian discussion regarding submarines is that a lot of, at least in public popular discourse, is about how they can contribute to Arctic sovereignty and underwater domain awareness here at home. <clears throat> but in actuality, in the past, uh, you know, two decades that the Victorious have been quote unquote in service, um, you know, the actual employment operational deployments of the submarines have been expeditionary operations overseas across the Atlantic to Europe, um, the limited amount over to Hawaii for RIMPAC, and then, of course, that famous submission to um, Japan and North Korea sanctions enforcement. Um, and so in terms of the actual non-training duties, it would seem that, you know, if our global operation, expeditionary operations in line with the transition of the rest of the RCN and in line with the overall you know, strategy of the RCN in these post-Cold War days, um, it is very much in that expeditionary long-range operation. Now, how much of that is because these you know, victorious simply aren't very good for going under the ice um, versus how much like you know they actually do want to prioritize expeditionary operations? Um, it's hard to say. But I think um, it's safe to say that regardless, um, in terms of from a procurement standpoint and options analysis standpoint, the two actually go together pretty nicely. Um, just simply because uh, and we, I think we lay out in the report um, that the expeditionary operation requires you to have a very large submarine with a lot of fuel, a lot of excess capacity, a lot of uh, food, you know, have, have habitability requirements, et cetera. And all of these are also important for Arctic operations, just because you need a larger submarine in order to have the buoyancy required to service through the ice. And so, you know, the fact that um, we're not quite sure whether, you know, our submarine future is overseas or at home, it doesn't really matter all that, all that much from, um, you know, options analysis standpoint, um, at, at least in a broad sense. There's still details that have to be worked out, such as how much ice protection you want to give them. Uh, but in terms of the overall starting point, uh, they will both converge towards a large, um, a larger rather than a smaller vessel. So to come back to the the ice discussion, uh, how how much and to what extent and in what ways does ice coverage uh, throughout the Arctic region uh, matter uh, in this discussion? Is it about so you're talking 
prior uh, about the, the Russian bastion concept that was more about ice coverage kind of closer to actual Russian territory. So essentially to, to quickly paraphrase, their boats wouldn't have to go very far. You could basically just slip out a port, uh, go and hide, and then that would provide the resiliency to, to have that assured um, second strike capability rather than getting into all the kind of the hunt for Red October-esque games in the North Atlantic. Uh, but further afield than that, uh, where and in what ways does ice coverage looking ahead matter? Yeah, so we really want to start off with the whole uh, Bastion idea because the whole notion of the Arctic in the future, of course, that it's melting and sea ice will reduce. And so if the submarines, if the Russian SSBNs are hiding under the ice, but the ice is disappearing, what's going to happen to them? Um, and right now, we, we try to look at some of the uh, climate prediction models um, to try to see how much, when, where exactly in the Arctic that ice will disappear. Because, of course, when we say the Arctic is melting and the sea ice is melting, it doesn't melt evenly. It doesn't disappear evenly across the entire place. And so what we did was sort of look at models, see what they could do, talk about in terms of the future, which apparently was not too much. Uh, it's really apparently quite hard to predict that. Um, so we had to look back in the previous records and try to see the historical melting patterns of the sea ice um, in the Arctic. And, you know, lo and behold, it matches pretty well with what uh, ice navigators have been saying uh, all these years is that, yeah, you know, a lot of the ice is melting from the Russian side of the Arctic, which is why their, you know, northern sea route has been, you know, relatively uh, well trafficked, um, usable. Whereas, you know, on our side of the Arctic and Canadian archipelago, uh, a lot of those loose floating sea ice chunks, they managed to get jammed up and stuck in our side of the Arctic just because of the way the Arctic currents flow. And so, um, you know, what this means ultimately for the Russian SSBNs is that they're going to travel farther to keep hiding under that ice. And by farther, we really mean getting closer to the Canadian side of the Arctic and the Canadian the American side of the Arctic um, as part of their uh, general patrols. And of course, since uh, those SSBNs are guarded by, uh, you know, their SSN attack subs, that means, um, you know, those SSN attack subs will likely sail farther ahead of them. And which means that, you know, if, say, their SSBNs are hiding in the central Arctic, then their SSNs are probably going to be ranging into our EZ, our Arctic EZ. Um, if not a territory waters. Um, so what that really means is that there's going to be some sort of a, you know, a demand, at least on political side of things, for us to maintain some domain awareness in our EZ, at least underwater, to try to see, um, you know, whether these Russian submarines are actually operating in that area. And, you know, traditionally, this wouldn't be too big of a problem because we would just let the Americans and the Brits do it because they have, you know, demonstrated a very competent capability of operating attack submarines under the ice and uh, tracking the Russian subs. But, you know, what we're concerned about is that within the, you know, the 15 to 40 year time frame of the Victoria class replacement, you know, will there be a, that, you know, much feared for war with China that break out over Taiwan or something. And, you know, how many losses might the Americans suffer um, in terms of the submarine fleet? And will they have enough to both, you know, tackle that challenge in East Asia and devote some resources to tracking those Russian submarines? Um, as we know, um, the, the American submarine base, um, industrial base, is not in a very healthy state. Uh, they're quite stretched in terms of capacity. So, you know, if war does come, they're barely able to replace them in a timely manner. Never mind expand enough um, to actually increase the fleet size. And so what that really means is that as our allies are, you know, there's a very high likelihood of our allies having a decreased number of submarines in the coming future. Um, you know, who is left to, to monitor those Russian subs? 
in the Arctic. And given that they're mostly going to be sailing closer to our side of the Arctic, it seems it will be a likely job for us. Uh, whether that's the smartest idea or not, that may or may not be up to us to decide, um, you know, as part of an alliance and part of greater political negotiations and um, considerations. It might well be that you know we just need to have some sort of undersea, under ice capability to help monitor um, these submarines, even if not necessarily have the ability to um, combat them in any kind of um, aggressive way. So that's sort of a where 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 our logic stands on this and where that idea comes from. It is you know our allies have decreasing submarine capability. The Russians are you know continue to build up theirs. Uh, they're going to come closer to our side of the Arctic, and you'll end up being in Canada's uh, role to deal with them in some way. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca/careers. So then I guess the next thing I would ask is sort of logically. So that's that's laying out the scenario for having to deal uh, with uh, Russian submarines coming closer to Canada and, and working uh, under the ice potentially to, to um, hide and for some of the attributes that uh, you, you laid out earlier that are advantageous about hiding under the, the ice pack. Uh, what then drives a requirement for the Canadian submarines to be able to operate under the ice specifically versus to have a greater ability to operate like say like on the ice edge or in um, potentially key choke points or on the perimeter of an ice pack as an example. Right, so a lot, it comes down to um, how much I guess the uh, Russian submarines can surface through the ice. Um, if they can service through a substantial amount, a couple of meters worth um, in the middle of the central Arctic, then they don't really need to go and sail close to the ice edge, either on the Canadian side or over on the other side of Greenland, um, to launch missiles or communicate the air or what, all the other reasons you might want to have access to uh, the air uh, as a summary. Um, and so that means we're, you know, if they're going to stay happily in the middle of the uh, central Arctic, north of uh, Baffin Island for us, uh, north of Alert, um, then, you know, we need to be out there to go and, you know, be out where they are so we can actually spot them or rather hear them. Um, you know, so traditionally, you know, what the Victoria class can do and what their modernization is uh, can help them to do is help them operate in what's called the marginal ice zone, which is, you know, where the water and the sea ice meet. And so it's kind of a, a gradual transition towards the heavier sea ice. Um, but, you know, due to the, you know, the actual um, power limitations of our current class of submarines, they aren't really very safe. It's not a very safe thing for them to travel too far under the ice. And so they don't really have the ability to get all the way up into uh, the central Arctic to deal with uh, whatever might be happening up there. Um, and so it really comes down for Canada, um, the ability to monitor those uh, Russian submarines in the middle of the central sea ice um, where they're going to hang out because they don't really need to sail into um, the archipelago. Um, and but it is still from that location where they can service through, they can launch, you know, cruise missiles or, you know, in worst case scenario, ballistic missiles um, to threaten or hold at risk uh, the North American continent, um, you know, either at a, you know, at a relatively low level control escalation or at a high end, um, you know, fearful the Armageddon sort of scenario. And in either case, you need to have something that's sort of capable of operating under the um, you know, sort of deeper uh, Arctic sea ice um in the central arctic and not just um 
in the middle of the no, not just at the edges of that ice zone in sort of a Baffin Strait or so. So you you touched on this earlier, uh, but to get into some of the considerations about uh, the difference and the the delta between the current capabilities of our existing fleet and then what we might look to to the future, um, there's some areas of overlap uh, between some of the Arctic and ice specific considerations as well as some of the other kind of general considerations uh, for other potential employment theaters. But um, get into that in a little bit more detail. So what what are the, some of the key characteristics that if you want to have an ability to do more of that uh, Arctic uh, under ice activity that you're Describing there, what kind of considerations from a design point of view does that uh, drive? Yeah, so the two main ones I see is the um, endurance and the ability to service through ice. And so we'll go, we'll talk about the endurance aspect first. Um, so right now, basically, there are three main modes of propulsion for, um, you know, convention for submarines, right? There's the nuclear option, which uh, everyone's pretty familiar with. It gives you basically unlimited range, unlimited speed, unlimited pretty much everything. Uh, but we all know the downsides of that is the political and uh, actual financial cost, whether actual or perceived. Um, and which makes it really, really difficult to ensure that will actually come to fruition. I mean, you see right now in the uh, Australian AUKUS arrangement where they're trying to get their nuclear submarines, but you can see a lot of hesitation, a lot of pushback, a lot of concerns about, you know, is this actually going to happen? Uh, if it doesn't go through, what's the backup option? Do they have a backup option? And what might those be? Um, and of course, for Canada, we explore... And, and what are, just. Uh, just take a couple minutes to expand on some of those. I mean, wh what are some of those considerations? Because Canada has looked at a nuclear option before. You know, and not everybody, uh, I don't think, is quite as familiar with uh, what Australia is doing with their uh, maritime procurement as, as you are. Uh, what what what's, what are some of those considerations? You know, what is your assessment of the actual fiscal impact and, and the requirement for additional people, um, all the science and engineering infrastructure, all those things? Yeah, so well, I mean, you basically touched on it. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you have to not just build, have a place that can build submarines and then, you know, manage all the uh, nuclear materials that are required to, you know, you know, fill those nuclear reactors and then build the reactors. Um, but you also need, of course, most importantly, the people and expertise. Um, do we have people who know how to operate nuclear submarine reactor? Do we know any who can maintain them to refuel them when the midlife comes along? Um, all these things add substantially to cost. Where do you keep these nuclear fuels? Um, you know, when uh, they're not being not in the submarine, um, how do you deal with the um, nuclear non-proliferation treaty? Um, regards to how do you uh, handle these sensitive materials, make sure they don't get stolen by anyone or sold off in some uh, scheme. And these are all big concerns. Um, and ultimately, you know, all of these things cost money much more so than just simply building a steel hall and then putting a nuclear reactor into it. Uh, it's a whole entire supply chain, whole entire people uh, expertise chain issue that uh, that exists and um, that needs to be addressed. And I think, um, honestly, I think the Australians probably have a bigger challenge with that than we would if we were to do it, um, just because we have a longer history of um, building nuclear reactors and building nuclear expertise here at home. Um, but nonetheless, I don't think Canadians are particularly supportive of, um, you know, spending uh, too much money on um, having nuclear submarines. Um, and this is, you know, short of, you know, a Russian or a Chinese submarine servicing the middle of Northwest Passage. Um, I don't think that would be much of a buy-in for that. And, you know, the last time, the most successful attempt that we've had at trying to get a nuclear submarine was the 1980s. And we had one for our, our ministers of defense there who, you know, casually remarked, hey, maybe we should explore that option. 
And so, you know, the submarine office at the time, who was fairly well along in getting a proper diesel electric replacement, they canceled all that work to switch to nuclear exploration. Um, and then, of course, once the uh, certain uh, reports came out about how much uh, this would actually cost every cost us um, to not just buy the operate and maintain um, and everything, it just kind of quietly got scrubbed. And so that's, um, you know, so no, we ended up getting, of course, no, no nuclear subs and we canceled the uh, procurement for the conventional subs. And so, you know, that's how we end up uh, having no actual, you know, new proper, no proper submarine replacement program until we managed to get the secondhand Victorias. And uh, that's sort of the background for that one. But um, yeah. So that that's uh, thanks for just taking a minute to to get into some of that because I think it is important context. I mean, I had one other thing in and on top of the the operational benefits that you outlined. This would prospectively be the first and potentially only genuinely, uh, truly emissions, uh, carbon emissions free national security fleet that Canada might op great if we go down this route, uh, but it would come with lots of other considerations. But I digress and I interrupted you talking <laughs> about some of those other endurance considerations. Yes, absolutely. Um, so right now, that basically means the nuclear option is only limited by, you know, the sanity of the crew and uh, the amount of food that they have on board, um, which generally means that, you know, I think based on what we know so far, it's roughly around two months endurance. Um, underwater before they go stir crazy, start eating each other. Um, so, you know, that's sort of like that two month market sort of what I'm looking at in terms of a non nuclear replacement option. And is, you know, can we get something that sort of approaches that, you know, two month mark um, for our submarines in the future? And right now, of course, the answer is no in terms of underwater endurance. Um, you know, we have your standard these electric submarines like our Victorias. Um, you know, I go for maybe a week or so underwater before I'm surface to uh, recharge the batteries by running the diesel engines. Um, and then, but more recently, uh, and this is sort of pioneered by the Swedes, um, it was what's called air independent propulsion and AIP. Um, so basically, this carries with you a smaller, separate, secondary fuel source that you then consume um, using a method that doesn't require air. Um, using a separate engine basically in your summary so that you can charge your batteries using that uh, secondary fuel while you're still underwater without having access to the air. And so that, that yeah, extends your operating time underwater to somewhere around, you know, like the effort, companies advertise around three weeks or so, um, but very rarely do they tell you how fast you're actually operating your summary at that uh, to get that sort of um, endurance. So, you know, expect it more or less, probably less uh, in practical terms, depending on, you know, how far you're going and how quickly you want to get there. So there's that option. And then finally, more recently, very recently, of course, we have the introduction of lithium ion batteries, the same stuff we use in our phones um, in to replace the submarines, uh, lead acid batteries that have traditionally been their uh, main underwater source of power. And of course, um, great thing about lithium ion batteries is that they have, they promise to have up to four times the capacity of, um, you know, the current generation batteries, which, you know, can greatly increase the underwater endurance of the submarines. Um, and so, you know, there is a, so the Japanese are trying this right now. Uh, they implemented them in the last two of their Soryu classes and they implemented it under new Taigei class submarines, um, you know, both very large, um, you know, 3,000 to 3,400 tons um, submarines. Um, so, you know, they're trying to work out the uh, challenges of lithium ion um, in such a demanding space, because I'm sure as many listeners are sort of familiar or have heard over time that 
lithium lithium ion batteries are kind of uh, tricky. You know, they're kind of um, you've heard some time ago about how certain Samsung phones are banned from aircraft because it might catch on fire. Well, it's because of uh, the sort of uh, the immaturity of uh, lithium ion. How do you control their um, you know processes? And so, you know, how does that you know relate to the scaling up or to a submarine? It's not quite certain. Um, all I know is that like of my multiple devices that have had lithium ion batteries, a large number of them have you know expanded, pushing the screen off the side of the phone or pushing the cover off the battery. Uh, so you know it's uh, it's definitely one of those things where you really want to make sure that you can uh, control and uh, account for in especially in an operating environment as demanding as submarine when you're underwater. Um, so that's one of those things. But still, you know, if it pans out and uh, it becomes trustworthy enough, then, you know, I think conceivably you could say, oh, maybe we can convert, um, maybe we can, you know, combine AIP with lithium ion batteries so that when you're underwater to combine, um, you know, endurance might actually reach over a month, maybe even uh, gets close to that two month mark if you're lucky. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of this depends on the state of technology in the next coming, you know, decade or so and see how far those things develop. Um, and of course, there are a lot of, um, actual math involved in terms of the actual energy densities required. Is it better to have to spend that extra volume and weight on an AIP system to charge the lithium-ion batteries, or is it better just stock that space up with more lithium-ion batteries instead? Um, because you know the diesel fuel conversion into lithium-ion might be a better um, math than using AIP for that. So those are the options at play. So that's the endurance piece. Um, yes. What are the other kind of key design characteristics that, that flow out of the, the Arctic and the under ice consideration? Right. So the endurance thing applies pretty much globally. Um, doesn't matter. You can benefit from it globally. Uh, but what's really important for submarines under the ice is the ability to service through the ice, um, either for operational reasons, such so as you know, launching missiles, uh, contacting satellites, con uh, sending um, reports back home to see as to, to, as to you know, what they are observing, to receive orders from home um, to, you know, use their sensors, electronic sensor mass to uh, collect intelligence in the area around them and all sorts of reasons. And then of course there are emergency reasons. If creates there's an emergency underwater or something, um, you know, somebody gets hurt on board and needs to be evacuated, uh, then they need to surface uh, fairly quickly to see, um, you know, to uh, res get those people rescued. And so this means you can't just like, you know, walk, you know, sail around hoping you'll find a shallow patch of ice or what's known as a polynia and sort of a thin sea ice or no sea ice area that's uh, in the Arctic. Uh, you can't really wait around for that um, until you find one of those. So you need to be able to surf through the ice um, in you know, the most likely amount of thickness that you'll encounter. And that really, that really requires you to have a fairly large submarine with a large buoyancy um, ratio so that when you're when the submarine is kind of parked under the sea ice and you blow your ballast tanks it has enough upward force to push through and break through that sea ice and this so this is so the ability to service through the sea ice is independent more or less of the power source of that submarine it's not about whether you have nuclear or not that lets you service through the sea ice although that that the whole nuclear allows you to go through sea ice is very much a sort of, um, you know, a mythos, as it were. Um, and it's more of a correlation rather than causation sort of uh, issue. Um, and so, you know, technically speaking, you could have a very large uh, diesel electric submarine with enough of that buoyancy ratio to let you service through the ice um, and have access to that, that very important air. Um, and so, 
Again, that's the second part of the, the um, you know, Canadian submarine requirement would be that excess buoyancy let you add access to that air. Um, and so that, what that means is that in terms of looking at your future submarine option, we're looking at a very large submarine um, that can have that expect then have the buoyancy required to get through the ice. And what we're looking at right now, it's, a, it's kind of hard to say as to what exactly the tonnage would be, but we have some ideas based on, again, that 1980s attempt at getting a nuclear submarine. Um, and a big part of that consideration was the ability to service through three meters of sea ice. And um, it was deemed that while you know, two competitors at a time one of them was the French um, Ruby class, which is only around 2,700 tons, so really small for a nuclear sub. And the other one on the other end was the British Trafalgar class of 4,700 tons. Um, and back during that competition, it was deemed that while the Trafalgar class, the British sub, could comfortably service through the sea ice requirement, the uh, French one was too small to do it. And so, um, you know, the French did try to, some tricks here and there, like adding a little ice pick to the top of the sail to try to concentrate all that force into a smaller point. Uh, to try to push through, um, and but ultimately D&D um, &D sort of uh, scaled back the requirements to one meter of sea ice just to make sure that the French could remain in the competition. I mean, ultimately it didn't go anywhere, so it didn't matter, but that gives us an idea sort of, you know, how much sea ice can we expect to push through that a future Canadian submarine might have to encounter and be able to deal with. And so we go back sort of to, um, you know, to the report where we actually outline um, some of the or the current uh, thickness of sea ice in the Arctic. And certainly in the uh, the thickest amount these days seems to be around that three to three and a half meter mark. Um, so that sort of still, I think, would be the comfortable maximum um, thickness that somebody would be expected to go through um, for ours. And so again, we're looking at that sort of, you know, upper almost a 4,000 ton range for a submarine if we want something that can service through the ice. Um, and you know, in submarines in that range these days are very, very rare uh, for non-nuclear sub. And we I talk about briefly about the Japanese one, the Soryu and the Taige classes. Uh, they sit at most roughly around 34, 3,500 tons. So just a little bit shy of that. Uh, we have the uh, South Korean KSS-3 Block 2, I think it's called. And that's a much larger submarine, close to 38, 3,900 tons. Um, and interestingly enough, it's that big because it carries three uh, ballistic missile tubes, which I'm imagining Canada won't actually be using at all, but <laughs> who knows in the future, um, depends on our um, deterrent strategy. Um, and then of course you have the um, the Spanish S-80, which has been in the works for a very long time, uh, just recently finally got put into water. Um, and that's also sitting around that 3,800 ton mark. And of course the largest of them all, um, that was closest to being built was the Barracuda short fin that the French were supposed to build for the Australians before the Australians canceled that. And that was sitting at around 5,400 tons or so. So very much, very large, um, probably would have been good for us. Um, but again, that so it might meet the buoyancy requirement, uh, the size requirement, certainly. Um, but you'll still have to do a lot of modifications to make it, you know, ice resistant. So it can, when services through the ice, it's not damaging itself. Um, so there's still, you know, I mentioned that, you know, the endurance and buoyancy are two major requirements, but, you know, having to uh, do all the little engineering work to make sure that all the fins and arrays are ice protected, all that stuff will still have to be done regardless of what we choose. So. Well, Tim, uh, thanks for uh, sharing some perspective on, a, on an important future project uh, for Canada. Um, 
are there any other final thoughts uh, that you're thinking about as you're thinking about the the prospect of of Canada renewing this important fleet? <laughs> Only that it's a it's a very much a unicorn um, uh, project that requires a unicorn solution in a project where nobody wants to have a unicorn solution. Um, it's definitely a project that I think many um, politicians would consider a nice to have, but not a priority in ergo. They'll be happy with getting something off the shelf, quote unquote. Um, but, you know, it's uh, if we wanted to actually have any kind of real Arctic capability, it's going to have to require a lot of Canadianization go to make happen. That's because nobody else has this sort of requirement like we do. Um, and that's always been sort of the uh, <laughs> trick with the Canadian Armed Forces that we're, you know, we're having the same geographic situation as the United States, but we want to do, but with one tenth of the population, and we kind of want to do everything um, around the world. So it's always going to be hard and expensive. Um, but you know, hopefully, this provides a little bit of uh, appreciation just how complex these things are. Well, and I think beyond that, um, some of the potential trade-off decisions that might have to be made between uh, maximizing on either of those two capability sets that you just mentioned, uh, or pursuing the uh, Canadian uh, defense procurement white whale of a uh, an actual off-the-shelf procurement. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank Tim, uh, thanks again for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. Uh, now that you are Dr. Tim Choi, uh, has that changed what's uh, on your bedtime reading shelf at all? No, I mean I'm. Um finishing uh, this a book chapter on Canada's contribution to the Korean War from the naval, naval side. So I was just uh, recently finishing um, Thunder in the Morning Calm by uh, Myers. And that was a sort of a first-hand look combined with a bit of archival research on his part uh, to talk about uh, sort of a, a great Canadian contribution of, you know, nine out of 11 destroyers or eight out of 11 destroyers to uh, the Korean Peninsula at a time when, you know, our concentration was supposedly ASW the North Atlantic. So it uh, tells you, um, you know, Canada's tradition of sending things on expeditionary operations, even though they technically have greater concerns close to home, is nothing new. Uh, we've been here for a very long time. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again, Tim, for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. Thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.